2: I'm Ron Aaron. We're delighted to be with you. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here in our studio. And we're uh, going to talk in just a moment about the uh, incredible experience Pamela Price had in dealing with the issues involving her mother. But let me remind folks who you are. Carol Zerniel is a nationally known gerontologist. She's the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and the chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging and spends a lot of time on issues that a whole lot of folks don't want to deal with.
3: Well, you know, unfortunately, that is true. I will say that we in the field of aging are um, in the sort of the minority of uh, fields. But, well, but it's but, you know, it's incredibly rewarding. And thank goodness for people like our guest, Pamela Price. Um, you know, it takes professionals and it takes lay people, all of us working together to make things better.
2: And a lay person who is a professional writer makes it a lot easier, too.
3: Well, yeah, a, a lay person who's good with words, um, right. the best of all possible worlds.
2: Lots of people who are writers are night owls, and, and I know that there's a lot of debate about uh, whether exercising at night, if you're a night owl going to the gym or walking in the neighborhood or hopping on that treadmill at home, is that a plus or a minus?
3: Well, you know, that, I thought this was a really good question. This actually came from the Washington Post and the researchers from Harvard Medical School, and he was confirming, you know, we were all told, don't exercise late at night, right. too close to bedtime. It'll, it'll keep, keep you awake. Go, it'll keep you awake. Um, and he says that that's not really true. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and I thought it was because I have exercised, you know, fairly close. To, you know, before, I always say I can't exercise after eight o'clock because otherwise it keeps me awake. I guess that wasn't it. So, what he and researchers at Arizona State University were saying is that um, you know even exercise a half hour before bedtime is not a bad thing, and it can actually make your sleep better and deeper and, you know, more restful than if you hadn't exercised. The key is your cycle of when you're awake. So th- what they're saying is it's it's when you eat, and what you eat is probably more important than when you exercise. It's that routine. So they're saying that, you know, you shouldn't, your first meal and your last meal of the day shouldn't be more than 12 hours apart. So that means if you ate breakfast at 8, then you should have had dinner by 8 p.m. It's if you go later than that and you eat after 8 p.m. So you, if you exercise late and you eat dinner after you exercise, then you end up eating and going to bed. And that's what keeps you awake because now you've got this glob of food in your stomach. Being sto- digested. Yeah, being in your, in your stomach. So... Um, you know, and, and they're saying, you know, after the sun goes down, so your body, this is the, uh, you know, we've just had the longest uh, day of the year in terms of sunlight. Um, but after the sun goes down, your body starts releasing melatonin, and it's telling you it's time to go to sleep. So if you let it get dark and then you eat, which I don't know what people in the East Coast do in the winter wintertime, um, then that has an impact on your sleep. I don't know if you have to back this up or what. So they said the three pillars of good health. Here we go. Here's the punchline. Three pillars of good health are nutrition, exercise, and sleep, and they should not be at odds with each other. So if you're getting up at 4 a.m. to exercise because it's good for you and you're not getting but three hours of sleep to do it, that's bad.
2: Yes, that's right.
3: <laughs> you know, So if your exercise is disrupting your sleep, that's bad. Um, you know, if you if you if you exercise a lot, you need more sleep. You need not seven to nine hours. Um, so if you're exercising so much, you you um, are not allowing enough time for sleep. If you're eating too late, um, and if you, you know, you've got a, I guess it's that balance of everything. So you know, twelve hours between breakfast to dinner. Exercise when it's good for you. Just keeping in mind that. Um, You've got a cycle. You need to be consistent, and probably that will help you most of all. But, hey, if you want to go, I know here it is just hot, hot, hot in the summer, and I often take my walks after the sun goes down.
2: We went to a swim meet uh, with Reagan, who's on a little swim team, and uh, just the other night it was so incredibly hot, hotter than, than I, I really thought I was just going to pass out from the heat. It was so incredible. at 7, 8 at night.
3: Oh, I know. I can, I can think of um, – You know, I grew up in the Panhandle where it's like high plains. It's that desert kind of a climate where the temperature drops when the sun goes down and mornings are so crisp. And here you can wake up at 6 a.m. and go outside and it's still 92. It's dropped dropped from 96 to 92 and the humidity's up and there's no coolness in the air. No, none. Just sticky. Sticky, sticky, sticky. None. Yeah, none. We're talking
2: off the air about uh, uh, some information uh, you've developed about Computers linking into your brain, and I mentioned to you a Dean Kuntz novel that I read several years ago. Uh, I used to read a lot of Dean Kuntz. He then went off on he's, a religious. He's very
3: kit. prolific, but, but
2: he's an incredible writer. Uh, and uh, it was a story about how a, a man was so deeply involved in his computer that ultimately it literally grew into his brain. So uh, think about a USB port in your head, and the computer was just burrowing into him.
3: Wow. Now
2: this is probably 15 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago.
3: Before the Matrix? Uh,
2: yes. And now what you're suggesting is this may all be possible. Well,
3: I don't know if anybody else saw the article on um Elon just Elon Elon Musk. I yes. don't want to mispronounce it. Elon Musk, who's the guy that invented Tesla because he made an announcement about a brain implants, computers in your brain um and so his company is Neuralink, and it's um, a human-machine cooperation to communicate. So right now, the you know, it sounds kind of interesting. It's, scary, you know, a little scary. Um, so Neuralink and Elon Musk, uh, he basically has a business plan where he's saying that um, it's a bandwidth problem our brains talking to computers and so you know we need to you know work on that issue and he's really hoping to help help people with severe brain injury so he wants to help people ha- be able to almost have telepathy with each other so you have a chip and i have a chip and we don't have to talk it can be like that star trek episode in next gen for those of you who are star trek fans right. that i'm a geek where captain picard and the nurse um are able to communicate with i'm sorry she was a doctor my goodness and the doctor able to communicate telepathically so that's one facebook how is that for bizarre this is the one that probably scares me Facebook, Um, just weeks after, um, you know, Musk launched Neuralink, Facebook announced that it wanted to help people type by thinking so that they can type 100 words per minute and get off all those Facebook posts even faster because now their computer is part of their brain. I can't think of anything scarier than having Facebook in my brain. Um, the good news is, is we right, don't do now, Facebook. I don't do Facebook and they're not certainly not going to link to up to me, you know, besides on the computer. Uh, but theirs is also a business plan and they're really talking about optical imaging. So that idea of thinking and typing is really based on what your eyes are seeing. Um, and you know, maybe it's something similar to what, um, somebody who has ALS, you know, might use right. for typing. Right. um, that, that there are some companies that actually have some technology. Emotive actually makes products. Okay, here's a word for you. Electroencephalography headsets.
2: Electroencephalography headsets. I'm
3: not going to say it again because I think I got it right the first time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But they have a a headset for consumers that retails for $2.99, and it allows users to visualize their brain activity in 3D, measure their brain fitness, I don't know what that looks like, and even control drones, robots, and video games with a headset in thinking. Wow. So it's a wearable brain is what they're calling it. I think it's coming. And they actually have something out. All right. And here's the scariest one of all, the U.S. Military Department of Defense also is investing $60 million to have um, some sort of a brain initiative the size of a nickel ready in four years, which is pretty ambitious. They are envisioning this as something to compensate for loss of sight and loss of hearing. I don't know. I'm not signing up for any government <laughs> test for any kind of neurological link, brain link with the government. You know, just to be paranoid. Them or Facebook. I'm sorry. I'm not doing that. I might put on a little emotive headset, but I'm not linking to Facebook or the government. Just wow. Saying. Just saying. Don't call me. That's all know, pretty scary. That, that is, you know, that's... You know, robots are kind of fun. This is kind well, of robots. scary. This is kind of scary.
2: In fact, you read more and more about robots coming into Assistant in caregiving.
3: I know. Well, if you watch too many movies, you won't watch. You won't want a robot either.
2: <laughs> <laughs> ruin it for all of us. Yeah, they turn on you. <laughs> Got to be careful with the robot. Now, a, a neat little segue into suicide.
3: Well, I was going to say, "Oh, let's talk about let's talk about killer robots to killing yourself." Oh. Exactly. So, you know, this actually is a is a very important topic that probably um, if you're a caregiver, this is something you want on your radar screen.
2: White that- guys 65 and over.
3: Older men have the highest suicide yes. completion rates of any age right. group, and so nineteen um, percent among forty-five to sixty-four, uh, and second highest, I second highest rate, eighteen percent, eighty-five and older. Mm. Um, and it's because men, you know, once they get make up their minds uh, to kill themselves, Use a gun. You know, they yeah, they get a gun. They're not taking any pills. They're doing something really lethal. Um, and suicide is a hundred percent preventable if you can catch it in time. So there are risk factors and warning signs that you need to look at. You know, depression prior suicide attempts, you know, really it's about that feeling of hopelessness. If somebody starts giving away things that they value, that they are real treasures, you know, that should make your warning go off. If they're having a personality change, if they're abusing alcohol and drugs, um, if they're saying things like, maybe you'd be better off without me, maybe I won't be around, Um, that's all of those are warning signs, and you definitely want to talk to the you know a suicide prevention helpline there is a national suicide prevention lifeline at one eight hundred two seven three 273 talk one eight hundred two seven three 273 talk and so that's for you or someone you know that's in crisis um, and there are local you know, helplines as well. If you call 211, I suspect you'd find a local suicide prevention line as well.
2: And they can make a difference.
3: Well, they can make a difference. You can talk the person off the ledge. We've all seen it in mm-hmm. a movie. That's not fiction. And a lot of times, a suicide, uh, um, you know, is a cry for help, or attempted suicide is a cry for help.
2: She's Carol Zuriel. I'm Ron Aaron on Caregiver SOS On Air. We're going to talk in a moment. To Pamela Price, Daughter's Fears for the Future of Elder Care, writing about the experience she and her mother had in trying to get quality and continual care for her mom. Right here on Caregiver SOS on Air. She's up next on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
4: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
2: Eichoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
4: What a terrific ride it's been.
2: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
4: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
2: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
4: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
2: Well, it's very interesting because last week on Caregiver SOS on Air, we talked about the direction that long-term care is going, where elder care is going to end up, where the money is or isn't going to be, where the kind of response nationally is. And today we take up the topic, as we promised, with Pamela Price, a daughter's fears for the future of elder care, talking about the situation involving her mom, she also gave a TED talk, and we're delighted to have her here in our Caregiver SOS on-air studios. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial and Pamela Price. Thanks for coming in.
5: Oh, I so appreciate the opportunity to talk to s- about such an important <laughs> topic.
2: And uh, we, we read a piece that you had written for the Rivard Report, <laughs> which uh, lays out in very direct terms the experience. Uh, that your mom and, and you had mm-hmm. uh, being treated in a hospital. Uh, w- were you aware of uh, what some of the issues were before you began to face this with your mom?
5: I think so to some extent. Um, quite frankly, my mother's greatest fear when I was growing up is that she would end up in a nursing home. And so that we ended up having to make that choice given the state of her condition and what she required. Um, I had some inkling that things were um, not rosy and easy. Um, With my mother's case, um, she suffered from rheumatoid arthritis and had complications related to that, as had my grandmother and, in fact, my my great-grandfather, too. And um, what I didn't anticipate was the perfect storm that our situation was. My mother was mentally sound. Um, completely capable of articulating her needs, but physically could really do nothing without support. And um, you said
2: at one point the only way she could get around was on a gurney. Yes.
5: And what I discovered in all in all of this is that the system looks like it would support a disabled elder, but that's not necessarily the case, and that there are a lot of assumptions made about. Um, patients when they go into a, to a hospital setting, whether or not they're coming from a nursing home or a home situation, assumptions about mentally where they are, how well they hear. And I found myself in the position of being not only an elder care advocate, but also really a disability advocate at the same time and helping her convey her specific needs and was really kind of shocked at um, the conflicts that those two different tracks could present for us so I was not prepared
3: well I was just thinking about you know there's a, a vast difference between someone who is born with a disability versus acquiring a disability in later life and so if you are accustomed or you're thinking of people who are younger persons with disabilities who are have services that are provided to them and you have the expectation that you're going to get that same level of care and service um, because your loved one has grown old and developed disabilities it's just not the case Mm
5: -hmm. absolutely and the sense of independence that she lost and and mourned all the way through her time in a nursing home um, was was difficult for her now were you
2: involved in her day-to-day care as a caregiver
5: Yes and no. One of the things that I've learned over the last several years, whether your family member is in town, in your house, or halfway across the country, if you're responsible and ethical and concerned about your family member, you're on all the time. And so while my mother had a great deal of pride and was not really comfortable with me taking care of her bodily needs and we needed a nursing home to to move her, I gave a. There was a lot of emotional caregiving going on, and and I did. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned: is um, how time consuming that alone can be if you're really plugged in.
2: You wrote pretty powerfully about uh, how she didn't want to spend down, how she didn't want to be on the public dole. That mm-hmm. it was something that she never wanted to embrace, and yet, who can afford private care or or home care or, or even institutional care uh, unless you can get Medicaid?
5: Exactly. And, you know, we're at this moment right now where there are lots of people that say they have a good idea, but no one's really listening to those primary caregivers. And those primary caregivers, wonderful story from Boston College in the last couple of weeks, came out, report in the New York Times, overwhelmingly, the caregiving falls on middle-aged daughters. And it comes at a very steep price, not only financially, because they give you know, they don't perform as well on the job. They're giving up to two weeks a month in, in elder care service to their family member. And many of them have to retire early. Uh, my own career as a writer really had to take a back seat to my caregiving for a couple of years when things got kind of crazy. I needed to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I didn't know when i get a call to go to the hospital, the ER, Um because I was very involved in her care, sometimes I would know more about what the pr- protocol was than the person on duty at the nursing home. Very, very much a job. Um, but I, my reward was my mother's interaction with my mother and really coming to know her at this stage of her life. But it took its toll. In fact... A couple of years after she moved here, I ended up coming down with um, Graves disease, which is thyroid disorder, order, which is directly tied to stress. Address. And that's very, very common with middle midlife um, caregiving females. Yes. How, are you, how are you doing now? I'm in remission, thankfully. Oh, but, but, but uh, you know, the flip side is, is I had great insurance and great doctors and access to great insurance and great doctors. I could afford to get what I needed quickly. Um, not everybody has that. And then, so, you know, we look at it, if we look at it as a bullseye, we have the patient in the men, men, middle and their health care issues, and you work out from there, it gets complicated.
3: Well, and as we've talked on the show, that um, if you, let's say, you quit your job completely and all you were doing was taking care of your mother, um, a woman who quits her job and becomes a full time caregiver loses over $300,000 in benefits mm-hmm. over the course of a lifetime. Uh, and having to come back to work, and so you know your your decision not to to give everything up you know there's a, there's a lot of validity and people should not feel guilty and they should think very closely about making that decision. and so now we're having to choose between caring for mom and having enough You know, either having health insurance because you still have a job or, you know, taking care of your own family, your own retirement.
5: And the workplace is changing so rapidly. Even with me, where I could freelance a good bit a few years ago, well, two years off, a lot of my contacts dried up. And so I'm finding myself. Exactly, which is completely understandable Mm -hmm. from a business standpoint. But now I'm starting completely over in a lot of respects, which is. You know, we talk about making a midlife change. We don't we usually think you're having to basically put your career on life support, but that seems to be a fairly common issue for women, for women caregivers.
2: Well, the article you, you wrote for uh, the Revard Report, it was obviously obviously you're a writer. It's beautifully written. Thank you. And uh, share with our listeners who may not have seen that, uh, you're talking about uh, your mom going into the hospital unable to walk but mentally in great shape. Oh, she was. A- and how the hospital responded to her?
5: Well, one of the things I like to say: the quality of the care that you receive in any healthcare situation is only as good as the time of day and who's on duty in that moment. Why? Um, because well, there's a couple of different reasons. One thing is just the skill set. You don't know who's who's got what skills that apply to your particular family member. You also don't know what's going on in that person's life, and one of the things I learned from walking this road with my mother is um, certified nurses' aides, nurses, this is a population that is as stressed to the max, quite frankly, as the caregivers themselves, and they may have other things going on in their lives, they're trying to manage, they're not being paid really adequately sometimes, not what they deserve, Um, and so there's that issue, and The other issue is when you're a caregiver when you're a patient and a family member, you're not always especially in the beginning of this journey, you're not always aware of the culture within a hospital setting. So you may not understand that the last time that the the last thing that you want to do is is try to make a big change that's unreasonable when it's a shift change. Because, because you might not get a response. Right. And so you have to learn to triage, to use a medical term, you have to learn to triage in the moment what's worth pushing for and what's not. And, you know, I found that understanding that culture and learning to work with it gave us greater power, but that didn't mean that I didn't have problems. Look, did you ever
3: have the experience where you, you got that look of you're asking too many questions?
5: I did, and I had different answers depending on who was asking it and why. Um, saying I was a journalist was always a good out. Oh, then um, oh, then, then they're like,
3: "Oh, that's why."
5: I, later on, I often got the, "Are you in the medical profession?" <laughs> no, I've just done this for a long time, um, but. Yes, yes. There's 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 some suspiciousness suspicion, and, and I certainly understand that because a lot of times when you're a caregiver, you come in, you're emotionally charged, you're passionate about making sure your family member's taken care of, and you may blow your top, or you you may get angry. So there's it. It's just um, this laboratory for emotions.
3: So how did you deal with in the story you write about your mother? needing to be transported on a gurney because of her extreme um, rheumatoid arthritis. And the doctor recommended it, but no one would provide it. And they wanted you to just fold your mother up into a car, which was incredibly uncomfortable, painful mm-hmm. for her, and with no regard for the pain, and just take her yourself. Mm-hmm. So how did you deal with well, that? Well,
5: she was actually carried. And then uh, the transport happened, and then we started to get these coverage denied, coverage denied, so I would follow the procedures i would get letters i would you know come up with everything i could possibly come up with to make the case and they would deny it again and then i'd end up having to to send information before a judge and um the most passionate plea i ever made was actually to a judge's legal aid there was some confusion about a hearing date and i said you know i need you to take off your your lawyer hat for a minute and really listen to me because be a human yeah exactly and, and work with me and help me solve this problem, and we actually did win that. We got what we wanted, and it was paid for.
2: Stay with us a minute. We're going to come right back to you. We're talking – with Pamela Price about the situation involving her mom and her role as her mom's caregiver. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air podcast. By the way, of all of our programs are available. All you have to do is go to caregiversos.org and you can find all of the podcasts and you can download them, share them with a neighbor, or just play them for yourself again and again. We're hearing the story of Pamela Price's experience as a caregiver for her mom who was struggling with rheumatoid arthritis and the uh, non-response she got too often from the hospital and for healthcare care professionals. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Car- Carol Zernial on Caregiver SOS On Air.
4: Well,
3: you know, Pamela, as I was listening to you, my first thought was, Wow, and you kept your cool, and you didn't get mad. I was thinking of my own experience in the hospital with both of my parents, and then I heard you say the judge, and I went, ah, you know that you, you. So that's going to the mat when you go mm-hmm. to talk to a judge, even if you were maybe more pleasant than I was in person in the hospital.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. so that, but that's uh, you know what. How did you get? How in front did of you? Of judge? How did you get in front of the judge? <laughs> what we, happened?
5: Well, luckily in our case, it was done remotely, but that had to do with um, a Medicaid subcontractor making a decision about my mother's course of care based upon some Medicare thievery on the East Coast and deciding that because my mother had similar codes to people that were actually ambulance companies that were mis- ripping, off, wow. ripping Medicare. off, she must they, not need the they made the blanket assumption right. that that's what my mother was doing. Rather than listening to and actually looking at the paperwork, they just kept saying, no, 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 wow. because they were trying to recoup cost. And it was pretty shocking, actually.
2: I remember in one instance, Carol, you, you were talking about how your dad had... Fall in uh, in a bathroom, and no one would pay attention to the fact that uh, you thought he had a problem.
3: Well, we were in the hospital, and he had broken three ribs falling over the the back of the bathtub. Um, and but he the reason he fell was a heart problem. So mm. he was he was in the patient his patient records read heart problem. But they kept coming in and moving him and tugging him and pulling on him. When he had three broken ribs and he was in incredible pain, I finally had to tape a sign above his bed that said, I have three broken ribs. Be gentle, please. Wow. Because it was just awful.
5: Well, that brings to my mind a situation that was a recurring problem for us. My mother went septic multiple times. Which means? Which means that you have blood, basically blood poisoning.
3: Very dangerous. Very
5: dangerous. And for whatever reason i could tell when she was going septic. In um, fact, there are a couple of nurses at the nursing home, and we had some really great great caregivers there over the years. We said i was the sepsis whips- whisperer <laughs> because i could tell. <laughs> but the worst case that we ever had was when my mother was brought back from surgery and we had a fantastic surgeon. He sent her back upstairs. Uh, A cousin called me and said, something's not right. I walk in and find my mother bleeding, shift change, going septic, went septic with MRSA. Had I not been there, she wouldn't have made it. Um, Later, towards the end of of her last days and last summer, she passed away last summer, I found myself in a situation where I had to tell them to do a a sepsis call and they didn't follow protocol and I knew it and ended up having to call from inside the hospital, outside of the hospital to get action. My mother ended up in ICU again.
3: Right. And And the mercy you were talking about is that hospital, very vicious hospital acquired infection. Yes.
5: Yes. Brutal. Brutal, brutal. And we, she went to actually – to go septic from MRSA twice and survive it is unheard her, of. Yes, it's
3: very high mortality right. rate. Yeah. In fact, I have a friend whose husband did die of MRSA in yeah. the hospital. In fact, yeah.
2: it's so prevalent they have an acronym HAIs. Hospital-inquired infections. Infections, mm-hmm. right. We all, we, we all have
3: it. Yeah, have this lingo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you talk about, as I'm listening to you, you talk about resiliency, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, hearing that you're having to call outside of the hospital to get action in the hospital. Which is just amazing. You know, and you know, that it, it is amazing. Um, and so when you describe really resiliency, what does that mean to you? What did that mean to your mom? Because you said she had it as
5: well. Picking up and keeping going um, fi- when we could report things, when we could find channels to articulate this is what's wrong, this is what you need to improve on, um, and finding those moments of real connection and compassion and celebrating them and writing notes. And just to give you two examples, the night that I described where I had to push for the sepsis call, the nurse who received her in ICU was a man who'd been a traveling nurse earlier in the evening. And he said, I knew she was coming. I knew she'd end up here. I saw this was coming. I believe he was former military. I'm not 100% sure of that, but he certainly gave His that. demeanor was such. His demeanor, very polished, very professional. He said, step outside for a minute. I left for 15 he called me back in 15 minutes I walked in my mother was sitting up her cords she had um, super pubic catheter everything was draining correctly it was the only other word for it was it was artful medical care Mm. and he saved her that night he bought her time and I really chose to focus on that from that evening that quality of care The other example, and there are other positive moments, um, but one of them is I actually came to collaborate and talk with um, an administrator at one of the hospitals when I walked into her office and said, we have a problem and we need to talk. And she really listened to me and actually put on her lab jacket and went into ICU and told my mother that what my mother had experienced earlier in the week was not adequate um, and not appropriate. And she apologized. Um, Those moments of sincerity are lifelines, and they're really, really powerful, even in the face of enormous, um, enormous, enormous challenges. And in fact, the day we put pulled my mother to place her in hospice, I was approached by a nurse and a man I'd never met before, who told me that because of my mother and the advocacy work we did, that gentleman, who was an electrician or an engineer, excuse me, was ordering. Um, special ADA compliant touch pads to be put on every single floor in that hospital so no one would have the same problem that we had had.
2: Talk about that because you had mentioned off the air that uh, and with rheumatoid arthritis it, it provides a lot of deformity for mm-hmm. bones and fingers and what have you. Mm-hmm. You were saying that she supposedly had an ADA-compliant call button <laughs> so that yeah, she, she she's could laughing. call the nurse. She's yeah, laughing about the ADA-compliant
5: <laughs> yeah. call I, I laugh now. I was not laughing at the time. But I would go in. We would have to talk about we need some sort of extra measures so that she could reach the nursing station because her, her fingers were so contorted and the cartilage had worn down that, in fact, that first section of her thumb where the nail is, you could hear the bone rattle because it was no longer connected their initial hack i guess is the hip word for it was to tape a coke bottle the coke bottle lid those plastic bottles with some cotton and a piece of tape across the top of it thinking that she could use that to press to call no she couldn't she couldn't (laughs) now again looking for resiliency who came to her rescue eventually An administrative assistant in the office downstairs, who she herself had arthritis, drove to another hospital to find her a touchpad. Wow. Again, there are these glimmers that, you know, as as much – there's so much that we need to change and fix. There are some real heroes and heroines out there. And – you know, as I get more distance from sort of the drama of it all, trying to keep my eyes focused on the resiliency, um, those, those, those moments of change is important, too. So,
2: so what is it you'd like to see happen? Why are you speaking out about this?
5: I promised my mother that when the time came and enough of the grief had receded that I would speak up and however I could. Um, so I, it was Mother's Day. It was my first Mother's Day without her. I wrote that piece in 15 Minutes Flat. And edited it, sent it in. The revived Report was so great, gracious in, in printing, printing it. And um, my hope is that when people hear this story or read the story, that they will find the courage to make changes and to begin to have a really honest dialogue about some things that we're not talking about. Um, how long do we extend life? How do we come to terms with our attitudes about the dying process? Um, how much pressure are we putting on doctors to and nurses to keep people alive when it comes with the cost of quality of life? Um, I let my mother be the decision maker because she was completely sound. How did
2: she have an advance directive?
5: Uh, she did not, actually, um, because she had some fears about being in a nursing home, what might happen if she had too much. So I had to... You were a power
3: of attorney for health. Yes. Okay.
5: So I, it, was, it came down to me, and, um, you know, on the way over here today, I called to check on a friend because her mother is at that point, and she got the conversation today from her mother's doctor that it's time. And... In that moment, I knew exactly where she was. And every day, people enter that window and start to walk toward that veil, and we don't talk about it. We don't share. We don't sit down and say, I understand this is scary, that this brings things up. But I can turn to her because she sat with me last summer and say, hold out my hand and say, I'm ready. I want more of those conversations, and quite frankly, I'm not seeing, in reports from Washington, D.C., I'm not seeing women like me, and I'm going to say women because it primarily falls mm-hmm. to us. I don't see us speaking. I don't see us being invited to tell our short stories, and I think that that is a fundamental problem that we have to come overcome.
2: If you don't know Deborah Karcher from the final act, you should meet her because she's on the same road and the same mission with a nonprofit that's trying mm-hmm. to uh, provide more understanding for that final act and how it should happen.
5: Wonderful. It, it is as essential a part of life as birth, and we spend all of this energy talking about birth, and quite frankly, my mother's last few moments were really horrible, but those last days were transformative for me, for the people who walked that road with me, um, and It was a gift, and I tried to treat it as such. But, you know, when when we put things like how are you going to pay for it and all these other worries into the mix, people can't really do what is essential in human because it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to try to help fix that.
3: Yeah, I, I, I take great comfort. You know, we, we work with um, WellMed Medical Management, and we had a, a meeting this morning, and they, they keep expanding and expanding our palliative care department, um, which is not hospice, but it allows for the doctor and the patient to have that conversation about how do you want to live? Do you Mm -hmm. want to live long? And, you know, do you want to live, how do you want to use your energy? What's too much medicine? What's Mm -hmm. not enough medicine? You know, and to really make those choices while you can or or as a family, Mm -hmm. you know, to have you involved and hear what your mother has to say Mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that you're able to help carry out those wishes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I take great hope that that's a department that's probably growing faster than any program in our primary care group.
5: Well, I, I mentioned Ram Das who I, I ran across his quotation last year when mom, my mother was dying, and that idea of we're all walking each other home. And I think that that is such a lovely place to begin that conversation of how do you want to walk? How do I want to walk? How much do you want to lean on? For how long? I think it's, it's, it's a really powerful set of conversations to have individually, but also culturally, and it's time.
3: Well, I hope that you will continue to um, have those conversation and and draw up those issues because i i believe that you're right uh, we haven't had a nearly enough dialogue um and women still outnumber the men 60 40 in terms of caregiving men are creeping in but they mm-hmm. they got a long way to go especially on the emotion some of that emotional support mm-hmm. um that goes hand in hand with uh, being the female
2: but i love what you said to your husband ernie don't think i'm going to be here for your caregiving
3: no, I, I didn't say. I said, "Don't." I'm not going to do I'm the hands-on. I'm not. I'm going to do the. I'm not doing the hands-on. Right. So I've had this discussion. You know, we've yeah. we've been through that, and mm-hmm. I'm. A, we're we're just not going to do that. Our long-term care is going to be together in a facility. We're both moving in, and <laughs> we're going to, you know, probably cause all kinds of problems. Uh, I'm sure of that. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, Cam.
2: Really, uh, if folks want to get involved in supporting what you're doing, how do they do that?
5: Well, right now I have a blog. It's grew dot com. There is some information up there about elder care. Um, I'm happy to, to talk with people if they want to send a message. Um,
2: you need to say that again: red white red, and grew. Red
5: white and grew.com.
2: Thank you. Appreciate you coming in. Yeah, thank, thank, you. So. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Pamela Price. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. Up next, take ten on Caregiver SOS on air at nine thirty a.m. The answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
4: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
2: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, Well Med Radio.
4: What a terrific ride it's been.
2: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
4: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You
2: name a disease, and we've covered it but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. this is cool it's that time again for take 10 at the end of each of our caregiver sos on air programs we bring you take 10 on 9:30 a.m the answer i'm ron aaron dr jamie heisman joins us on our caregiver sos on air hotline nationally known psychotherapist deals with both addictions and caregiving and our co-host carol zernial so
3: if Doctor Spock, Mister Spock, not Doctor Spock,
2: I was thinking the baby book,
3: not the baby book.
2: So if Mister Spock, the Vulcan, the Vulcan, was a caregiver, he was a guy with no emotions.
3: Well, you know, right? that's right. I, you know, if I recently wrote a blog about Mister Spock and and if you know being a Vulcan might be something that would help caregivers out, and of course the most obvious is Mister Spock does not. Get tangled up in emotions. And so, Jamie, I think most of us humans uh, don't, uh, you know, we do get tangled up in emotions. We do have a lot of emotional baggage. And it can really throw us for a loop when we are in a caregiving situation. Is that true? Should, you know, what does Mr. Spock have over us?
6: He has the being a Hollywood character. And you can write about him and write him out if you want. And um, he's black and white. And so we can tell, you can tell. You tell he's not face. a geek.
3: You're not racked, You know. You're not rhapsodizing about. Oh, Mister Spock.
6: <laughs> no, no. The beauty of Spock, if he was a caregiver, was that he really would not show anger or resentment. And anger and resentment is is huge emotional issues that we tend kind to of repress as caregivers. Um, I just believe that feelings get caught in that shame and stigma of of the mind, and I don't think that you know we are attuned to the fact that throughout our lives, whether we're 20 years old or we're 80 years old, that we don't attend to feelings. We repress them. We push them deeper inside of us. We actually act out on unresolved issues. And then all of a sudden the world of caregiving hits us, something that we know we have no control over at all. And the next thing you know, these emotions start running rampant.
3: Well, I mean, I think it's a surprise. The first time you're new to caregiving, and the first time you get really, really angry, you know, at the person that you're caring for, I think it's, it kind of rattles you. It's it's You weren't expecting that necessarily to happen if you didn't normally have sort of a contentious relationship.
6: Well, Carol, it's not really the person, actually, that we're getting angry at. That's the interesting part about caregiving, and, and I know you know this well as a gerontologist, we're really getting angry at a disease and it's not really our loved one so much that certainly they have triggered us in our lifetime and no doubt have had challenges, you know, we've had challenges emotionally with them. But when the disease comes, whether it's Alzheimer's or heart disease or depression, um, it really changes the person and so we start to take things very, very personally and the beauty is that if you can separate the disease from your loved one, you can get more like Mr. Spock.
3: Well, I think that's actually, you know, very good advice because so many of us don't see that disease. I know my my own father, when my mother had Alzheimer's, when she was at home, you know, he was very angry with her. Um, but once she was put into a facility, he would say things about all of the residents, well, that's, you know, that's that Alzheimer's, you know, they're acting that way because of the Alzheimer's, and suddenly... The disease was separate from my mother. She was my mother again, uh, and he could distinguish that. But that was a really hard lesson to learn.
2: And the separation, you think, uh, enabled him to see that? He stepped back?
3: He was able to step back, I think, because he wasn't so exhausted and wasn't responsible for the 24-7 kinds of issues. Um, but I think, Jamie, you're right. It's not just with dementia. It's with any disease that, you know, that, you, that we, the person's sick. Um, and they're doing this on purpose, or, you know, they could do better, or we just assign all kinds of things to people who really, this is beyond their control. It's the well, you know,
6: Carol, uh, there's a truism in psychology that we don't look at enough, and that's that anger is often a cover for sadness, and that it's frequently a lot easier for us to get mad and angry and pound our fists than to cry and, and to grieve and, and, and to really get in touch with the sadness of something, again, that we can't control. And so that's the beauty of commiserating together. That's the beauty of trying to get into a support group when you're going through this range of emotions as a caregiver. You know, because when you actually commiserate with others, uh, they then can reflect back to you what's going on. And maybe it is sadness. Maybe it's not anger. It's a, what we call a clinical projection.
2: Yeah, but some caregivers get so angry sometimes violent, sometimes abuse the one who is the care recipient, uh, and they can't control that, or so they think. What drives that?
6: Well, pathology does, clinical pathology. Again, if you're going to go into caregiving and actually go through what you just described, Ron, chances are you were kind of like that before caregiving came around. So the baggage that's accumulated ever since you were a young child that's been unattended to that you haven't seen a therapist that you haven't gone to a group if you will that you haven't become aware and, and transformed yourself you're going to carry that into this relationship with your loved one and you know katie bar the door because you can really get angry and go postal if you will Um, When you carry this, that's why it's so vital for us to embrace psychology or embrace a therapist, embrace a third party that could be there for us, and to hear us cry, to hear this, if you will, just like you said, this unruly anger that comes out and allow us to self-examine it in a safe place.
3: Well, you know, one of the things that also comes out besides the anger is the guilt, you know, that's the you know, another up. yeah the, the other defining trait of many caregivers is just guilt. Where does that come from?
6: Well, we've talked about it, Carol, that guilt is really correlated, again, with the way we treat ourselves. The, the lower our self-esteem is, the higher the guilt. So guilt is a self-care issue. And when we go into uh, the relationship with a loved one that's a caregiver and, and we're not feeling good about ourselves, Chances are the guilt is going to be much higher. So becoming really, um, you know, self-aware of your own health and your own happiness and your own ability to raise your own self-esteem really will reduce guilt because guilt is a pandemic with caregiving, um, but we don't realize how much control we have over this, you know, ourselves just by taking care of ourselves.
2: Now hold that thought. Folks who just joined us may wonder, what are we doing here? This is Take 10. We talk about interesting, difficult, tough issues from time to time, and this is clearly one. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial on 930 AM, The Answer, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Guilt is something that everybody feels to lesser or greater extent, Dr. Jamie?
6: I think so. I think it's more helpless, and things feel hopeless, Ron, and and God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, and Alzheimer's is one of those things that we can't change, or a chronic or terminal illness is something we can't change, is that we always want to do more. I mean, it's our loved one, so we always want to do super, super work, and that's why perfectionism, I think, is the cancer of the caregiver's soul, and it creates this great guilt that we have, and if we just can put our heads on the pillow and say we did our best, then maybe the guilt will dissipate.
2: Part of us wants to do our best. Part of us wants to kill (laughs) them.
6: Well, that's true. And as soon as that happens, as soon as you feel those kind of rageful feelings, as I think, go to psychology today and put your zip code in and find a good therapist. Or pick up the phone, call the Area Agency on Aging, find a great therapist. Or go to the Well-Met Charitable Foundation and look for a caregiver SOS. Because you know from your gut that that's not right, that that rage is not right, and it's telling us something about ourselves that we need to attend to ASAP.
3: Well, I mean, I I think the word that you used, being self-aware. So, you know, caregiving, we've talked about in the past, it's the marathon, it's not a race. Um, And over this, you know, the course of taking care of someone, you're going to get hit with a lot of different emotions in standing back and saying, how am I feeling? What am I feeling? And am I, you know, do I need help with any of this is probably a good idea just to kind of, you know, test the winds of how things are going every once in a while.
6: Well, and if you're with a therapist, Carol, you can actually turn anger into kind of productive assertiveness. I mean, you don't have to sit there with this type of rage. Uh, it shouldn't be a cue to attack the other person. You can actually, like you say, when you become aware and start transforming and working with a third party, you can actually use this anger for purposeful reasons and actually set up a, a self-care plan. Like, I'm not taking good enough care of myself. I do have too much guilt. And there's things I can do to help myself, and that's ways to redirect the anchor.
2: Bingo. Got to stop you right there. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. Appreciate it. Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer, Sundays at 6 p.m.
1: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air
0: on 930 AM, The Answer.